Imagine That Studios and Karu Studios in association with Harper Voyager Books presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 2 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Eliza, this case file, it's yellow. Yes, that happens to paper. Sometimes with time, moisture and other factors, paper will do that. It's yellow and orange. Been down here a while, has it? And polka-dotted. Coming in, Willie? I'm not exaggerating. Oh, (laughs) this must involve the Ministry shock troops. We have shock troops? A talented group of 'er ne'er-do-wells that you most assuredly want covering your backsides. Your backsides have a previous experience with these shock troops? Let me see this case. (laughs) Oh yes, Kashmir. Quite a story you have before you, Wellington. Quite a story. Positively Shocking by T. Morris Spring, 1893 London, England Constance tapped her fingers against the wooden table, trying not to allow her eyes to case the room again. It was no different than it had been five minutes ago, and it had not changed in the five minutes before then, nor the previous five minutes to then as well. She was still surrounded by the skill of a mason worker, the only light provided for the room coming in from the high-barred windows well out of her reach. There was her table, well-worn and smooth. The stool she sat upon had not changed in its size, nor had it suddenly become comfortable the longer she sat in it. Her heels bobbed up and down quickly as she stared forward, tapping her fingertips together, and trying not to case the room. Once again, Constance's eyes darted to each corner of the room. Stone walls, wooden floor, reinforced bars in the windows, just as the room had been when the peelers brought her here. Oh, bugger. She whispered. A jangle of keys caused her to start, but she fought the urge to bolt, either for the door or for the far wall. She had been quite alone and undisturbed for a time. The last time something like this happened, the peelers that had nabbed her thought they might have a bit of fun having a go with her. It had been a close call, but a well-placed knee to the bullocks and a door callously left open made for a noisy, clumsy, but still lucky escape. Hinges groaned for attention as the heavy hatch swung open. The man who walked in was not a bluebottle, but he was a fine-dressed gent. The man was your typical high-brow type. Fat, thick mustache, thinning hair at the top. Something in his eyes when he looked at her on entering the cell was very different. The man saw her. He did more than that. 
he acknowledged her. She could feel her shoulders drop ever so slightly when they shared the glance. Resting on one hand was a small stack of papers underneath a tray. On the tray were two cups of a steaming tea, a strong woody kind Constance recognized. In the other hand was a small wooden box, just slightly larger than his forearm. He set the case down first, then slid the modest tray onto the tabletop. He gave a nod to the crusher at the door, and took his own seat as the heavy door groaned shut. The fat man picked up one of the two cups and placed it before her. I was unsure how you took your tea, he began, reaching in his pocket for a small kerchief. When he set it before her, it unfolded of its own accord, revealing three sugar cubes and a tin wand no bigger than her finger. You can use it to stir your tea if needed. If you unscrew the cylinder, you will find cream in there. Real tea. Constance blushed a bit as her hands went to pick up two cubes. She then began stirring the wand as he suggested. I do enjoy sweet things, but I prefer not to have my tea with milk. And I prefer milk only, he said, smiling pleasantly. Such as God's creatures, different tastes, part of what makes us unique. <laughs> she gave a little giggle, but her laughter caught in her throat as she saw what his eyes were now reading. He had moved the tray aside and was now engrossed in the papers that had been underneath it. The current one, under the fat man's fingers, was written in a particular flourish, only from Detective Willows. Something wrong with your tea? He asked without looking up from the paper. Constance's eyes jumped to the slender wand, now still in her tea. She gave the drink another stir, tapped the peculiar bobble gently on the tip of the cup, and then took a tiny sip. She shuddered at its taste. Cool, governor, Constance said, a laugh bubbling up from her. Best cup of tea I ever did have. We pride ourselves on our little touches of excellence, he said, still reading. I apologize for not bringing biscuits. <laughs> Never you mind, governor, she said, taking another sip. A fine cup of brown joy this is. Miss McGee, please, I am not a politician. Therefore, and when he looked at her, she was compelled to smile back. Call me Doctor, if you please. A doctor? She set down her tea and held out her left forearm. I have been feeling quite an ache when I... Not that kind of doctor, Miss McGee. He interjected, his eyes beginning the final page about her. By the time she pulled her sleeve back over her arm, this stranger had pushed the papers aside and now gave her his undivided attention. You have quite a colorful dossier, Miss McGee. Perhaps society desires you to disappear behind the walls of Scotland Yard. But if my own research on you is correct, I believe there is more to you than you believe. More than you realize. Constance scoffed. <sighs> if you don't mind, Doctor, I already heard this talk before from a man of the cloth. He told me about my potential. She paused before adding, The higher his hand went up my leg, the greater my potential grew. I assure you, Miss McGee, the doctor said, reaching into his coat pocket, my intentions are honorable. Constance said, sitting back in her stool, her eyes now fixed on the doctor. What's your game, then? 
I have come here with something that no one, despite your abilities, is willing to offer. He slid the papers concerning Constance back in front of him. A second chance. Constance barked a laugh. <laughs> oh, are you a barrister then? Or have you got an ear of the Queen's? I detect a hint of sarcasm in your tone, Miss McGee. Can't pull a flam over you then, Gov. But before she could tell him where he could shove his second chance, the unflappable Toth added, But if you must know, my doctorate is not in law, but the sciences. And as for the ear of the Queen, did you mean by the pneumatic system, wireless, or ether speak? <laughs> she laughed at his jest, or at least she laughed until he sat there across the table, quite confident in his brag. He wasn't joking. My organization possesses all three, he stated. However, the ether speak is only for the highest priority emergencies threatening the Empire. She could recognize a con. She could also recognize a bound-for-bedlam look. This gent was wearing an entirely different countenance, one she rarely saw in his type. He was telling the truth. My name is Dr. Basil Sound, and I represent a hand of Her Majesty's government that does not exist. We are currently in need of specialists such as yourself. I'm sorry, sir. She interrupted. Uh, but special what? It's all here. He said, tapping on the papers in front of him. He then flipped a few pages aside and smiled as his eyes fell on one item. Here's a perfect example. There was a brawl at the Cooper's Loom. You managed to rally a group of six to go into the pub and restore order. Dr. Sound looked up from the paper. Why? Constance thought for a moment, then said with full assurance, It was the proper thing to do? Exactly. The proper thing to do, which, according to this, Sound said, giving another glance over the police report, meant you were called upon to do some rather improper things. He looked up from the papers, and even in the dim lighting of the cell, his eyes twinkled. All right, then. Constance resigned, lacing her fingers together as she propped her arms on the smooth tabletop. What do you need? A spirit that believes less in protocol and more of impetuous action. A fearless nature that refuses to calculate odds. A leader that prefers a bold introduction as well as a theatrical exit. Dr. Sound gave her a smile that thrilled her to her very core. I need you to say yes to my group of miscreants, misfits, and misadventurers, and lead them when called upon to descend into the very mouth of madness all in the name of the Queen, all in secret. Constance felt in desperate need of a pint. Did he say he wanted her to be a leader? Sure, she was known for gathering the boys around her and charging into a pub to help calm a ruckus. The last thing anyone needed were the blue bottles stepping in as it meant freedom to lay the stripes on anyone. But to lead for the Queen? Her? Why should I trust you? He slid her papers to one side and mirrored her posture, even down to the lacing of his pudgy fingers together. The team I am assembling is unlike anything found in Her Majesty's army. Their intent is to hit hard and then disappear into the ether, leaving the opposition wondering exactly who they were and whether or not they will strike again. Shock troops, you mean? 
Constance had heard that term once before. From what she could gather, it was fancier and more noble-sounding than cannon fodder. They could be regarded as such, but that would make them no better than... cannon fodder, he said, his eyebrows bowing ever so slightly. Now would they? Constance felt the hairs on the back of her neck rise. How did he... The shock troops I am assembling, however, will be different in two respects. They will be specialists for one, the other. And again he paused, considering her with intent. Is they will be considered valued assets. She could not believe the next question tumbling free of her mouth. And you want me to lead them? Particularly after tonight's display at the Fox and Hound, he stated, Most assuredly. Constance felt her cheeks tingle with embarrassment. She knew, though, that against the blush she wore the tiniest of smiles. She wondered if that pub still burned as her skin did now. That had been quite a masterful writing of a wrong, ending with a display that served as a warning, even if that warning had landed herself in jail. Well, I don't have much choice in the matter, do I? Actually, you do. Dr. Sound's demeanor slowly changed, his impish, mischievous nature drawing Constance to him like a moth to a gaslight, slipped away. His look was now quite stern. Trust me, or stay here. If my trust is betrayed, I will show no mercy or consideration. You will be returned here and be processed accordingly. At least here, your fate is quite plain and expected, isn't it? And if I trust you? Then, he said, his smile returning, we embark on an adventure together. You will not know what lies around the corner, but you will serve at the pleasure of Her Majesty where you and your team are needed. While it could not feed her or offer her a comfortable bed, trust was a valuable commodity, not freely given away and perhaps harder to earn than a handful of shillings. And from outward appearances, he understood that. Constance did not know this man from any stranger in the street, but he seemed to know everything about her. And for a polished gent, he was familiar with the order of the streets. Go with what she knew, bleak as it was, or trust this doctor. There was no trying to run a game on this man. That much was clear. Very well, she said. I am your humble servant. He reached underneath the table and brought up the small box that Constance had all but forgotten about. Motioning for her to stand, he flipped its latches back and turned it so that it would reveal its contents to her when opened. On behalf of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, he began, lifting the crate's lid. Welcome, Constance McGee, to the Nefarious Explosive Response Faction. What her eyes took in made the second time Constance's breath locked in her throat since this man took a seat in front of her. How did he get that beyond the crushers? Dr. Sound pushed the crate closer to her and then gathered his tea wand and various papers. Constance reached into the open crate. The polished brass was cool to her touch. 
His voice made her jump. Ready, are we? Constance's brow furrowed. Ready? For what? He reached behind him and pressed one of the many bricks that made up the far wall. This brick, however, slid an inch into the wall. How did Constance miss that? A rumble of locks and gears tickled her ears, and just in front of Dr. Sound, the stone tiles underfoot began to form stairs that descended down into darkness. Your training, of course. Sound took a few steps, but paused as he motioned to Constance and her case. I would not forget that if I were you. You will need it. Winter, 1894. Kashmir, Southern Asia. Ordinance. Dr. Sound's paramount reason for avoiding fieldwork. Now, with a barren wasteland all around them, save for the craggy ridge sloping before them, Dr. Sound and his select team were enjoying their fill of it. Well, Director began Agent Braun as she reloaded her pistol. At least your theory of Methuselah's order, operating a hidden base in Kashmir, was spot on. If you recall in the debriefing, Agent Braun, I thought the base was actually in the enclosure, Amartand, not in the ridge overlooking it. A pity you could not have drawn that conclusion, Director, Agent Campbell said, just before standing up and unleashing a few bullets from his own gun. It would avoid the rather messy situation we are in at present. If this is your idea of a messy situation, Bruce quipped the masked Agent Smith as he swung his personal Gatling gun around. I recommend you request more assignments in India. Even with his artificial voice, the enigmatic gentleman was still able to keep his intent light and cavalier. This is what I would call a high tea. With that, Agent Mollick Smith opened fire, his Gatling roaring alongside the boiler that powered it. Dr. Sound watched as part of the distant ridge disappeared in a puff of smoke and fire. The quiet their arrival had disturbed returned again, but Agent Smith's finger gently stroked the weapon's trigger. Eliza peeked over the windowsill. What do you see, Morlick? Movement along the summit. Their infantry are repositioning themselves. Snipers. Bruce grumbled. Bloody lovely. Just let them pick us off like fish in a barrel. Hand a soldier a rifle, and they do not instantly become sharpshooters. No. Agent Smith continued. These men are soldiers, not snipers. Bruce's brow furrowed. How can you be so sure? I'm still standing, am I not? He asked, his tinted eyes still scanning the ridge. Any sniper worth their salt would find me a quick and elementary kill. The Order's infantry appear inexperienced in long-range kills. Finally, breathed Agent Braun. An advantage to our side. Wait. Something is moving on the rig. His words immediately stopped as he hoisted the Gatling an inch higher and pulled its trigger, unleashing a maelstrom of bullets. What he said next, only Dr. Sound understood as an Indian curse as he stopped firing and immediately ran back behind the cover of a nearby stone wall. The ruins 
shook all around them as the cannons opened fire. Outside, parts of the wall disintegrated, while one small stone structure disappeared completely. A heartbeat later, enemy gunfire resumed. Most economic, Dr. Sound observed. Have your infantry open fire while you prep your long-range cannons. The Order has picked up a few tricks over the millennia, I suppose. The stalwart Agent Campbell leapt free of his cover at the moment the bullets paused and continued to fire until he saw the puff of smoke. This time, the shell tore through part of the window from where Campbell had been shooting. Two other explosions rocked the foundations underneath them. Bugger it, Campbell swore. I'm out. I've got both my girls here, Braun said, motioning to the Panamu pistols in each of her hands. Another round for each of them in my belt, then I'm done. Sound looked at his remaining agent. Smith? Munitions is not the problem with my Queensberry rules, he said, hefting the small cannon in his grasp. But water and pressure are. Both are low. I may have a five to ten second burst remaining. Sound looked at each of them. The gunfire was now more intermittent. Deduction? Infantry laid down suppressing fire while the cannons reloaded. Conclusion? It would only be a matter of time. When he pulled from his pocket the small wireless, Bruce gave a groan. No, he spat. Not those bloody punks. You have an alternative to offer, Agent Campbell? Asked Dr. Sound. The blast from the ridge ceased all conversation as they waited for the shell. This time when their ruin shook, debris scattered and scuttled across the stone floor underneath them. With all due respect, Director, Eliza cut in before Campbell could retort. Make the call. His glance switched from Braun to Smith. Smith merely nodded in reply. The button gave a soft click as it was pressed. The party heard the beeping from the blue and yellow light atop the wireless transmitter before another salvo slammed into their crumbling sanctuary. Constance would see the puff of smoke. Then came the pop a few moments later. Through her binoculars, she could see shells tearing away at the Temple of the Sun. Come on, old man, she whispered, sliding the binoculars' magnifying lever to full. Still no retaliation or movement from the ruins. We're not here for the weather or the scenery. If you wanted to test our... Commander, called Thompson, her chief communications officer. We got the call. Let's not keep the director waiting, then. She returned. Let's ride. Constance turned to look over her team, a collection of diamonds cut from the same rough as she had been, all of them possessing a variety of talents but sharing one commonality, fearlessness. Theirs, she learned through their training, was not a sense of courage but more of a foolhardiness, now possessing a sense of direction. The division of 200 stood in sharp contrast to their barren surroundings. Against the stark yet textured beige of the Kashmir Desert moved an undulating mass of blue, orange, and yellow. Some wore wide vertical stripes while others remained in solids, 
but their chaotic, gaudy fashion was not to entertain or to amuse as would a clown's attire. No, their intent would be to confound at first. Constance gave the dart between her fingers a kiss with her sunflower-colored lips and then slid the soft projectile into the twin-barreled creation that Dr. Sound had given her in that London jail over a year ago. Snapping the double whammy shut with a flick of her wrist, she saw her troops crank to life their assortment of motor cars and local cycles. Thompson! She called. Are the boilers at full? Maximum pressure, Captain! He said, cranking their ride to life and lowering his goggles down across his face. The dry air here is also good for the wireless, Mum. All signals are in the green. Green. She thought absently, as she caught a glance of her own skirts of blue and black. I wonder if that would be too much to add into our colors. Constance threw the throttle forward, and her motor car rumbled to life and led the charge. She could not hear the gunfire or the cannons any longer, but she could see the white puffs emanating from the ridge overlooking the Temple of the Sun. That would be their target. Constance wrapped Thompson on the shoulder, motioned to their comrades holding the line to the left, and then to the others holding to the right. Thompson gave her a thumbs up. All units reported green. Good to go. She reached up and yanked down the handle above her head. On hearing the dull thud, she leaned forward and watched the yellow flare soar high above their line, hovered, and then begin to fall. Her engine gave a guttural roar as she turned to the left, as the car to her left cut towards her, narrowly missing her front bumper. Immediately, she cut to the right, and she heard that same car now cut narrowly behind her. She glanced to either side and watched as her ranks slowly disappeared behind a veil of dust and rock, all while executing a similar zigzag pattern. Within minutes, they would appear as nothing more than a sandstorm closing on the temple ruin. Constance activated the beacon on the roof of her car, then pulled down from her cabin ceiling the enhanced stereoscope. This little offering from the ministry, connected to her motor car's rotometer and compass, worked in mission settings where limited visibility was a factor, whether natural or, in this instance, man-made. Constance slipped in the image of Martand, pushed her goggles down, and leaned into the eye enclosure. The card slowly inched towards her, sliding left and right as she changed course. The mere notion of driving with blinders on would send anyone else into a panic, but these maneuvers, rehearsed alongside her comrades-in-arms, had been practiced and perfected during their training. The idea, when first presented to Dr. Sound and his military liaison, had been dismissed as lunacy. But Constance and her troops, albeit at the cost of a few bruises, proved their theory credible. Now, it was in practice. And only the sound of her second rumbling dangerously close in front and then behind her, along with the stereoscope's image of Martand, served as her sole judge of distance. Thompson was manning the wireless, monitoring for any sudden word from the rest of the faction. He remained quiet. No news is good news. The stereoscope indicated they were less than half a mile from the edge of the ridge. She felt for the beacon switch above her head and threw the lever from the forward to the rear position. This would make the light above her go from a rapid strobe to a steady beam. Ten. Nine. Eight. She whispered. If this worked, the signal would be passed down the line, and they would emerge as one. Three. Two. 
one. Constance pushed the stereoscope away, lifted her goggles with her free hand back over her face, and locked her steering wheel in a neutral position. Through the wisps of earth and desert, she and her fellow troops appeared as a line of metal and machine, their local cycles and motorcars decorated with the light sheen of cashmere soil that gave their transports the semblance of smoldering monsters erupting from the gates of hell itself. Constance removed double whammy free of the holster between her seat and the door and jerked the wheel hard to the right. The car was now to Constance as a kite in the skilled hands of a scientist catching wind readings in Hyde Park. She allowed her motor car to drift across the desert floor so they were now parallel with the ridge, but still closing their distance. Constance extended her shotgun and took aim at the only visible target on the ridge, the long protruding barrel of the enemy cannon. She followed the dart's thin, pearlescent smoke trails to their point of impact. Stopwatch! She shouted back to Thompson, as four other motorcars drifted to where she remained still. Three of them loosed similar double-barreled attacks, while two soldiers leapt free of their rides and began firing their Rickies, a nickname coined by Constance and her troops. Out of the six shots each of their high-powered pistols provided, she could be certain that at least three darts hit their mark. First line, down and reload! She shouted to either side. Go, go, go! On the third call to fall back, she slammed her foot down and led the line of motorcars as another line of five cars drifted towards them. They too would come to where she had stopped, but would hold on the assault if the first volley failed. Five! Thompson's voice called over the rumble of their engines. Six! Seven! Eight! The dart Constance had blessed with a single kiss on impact with its target was designed specifically for their faction from those Clankertons, Axelrod, and Blackwell. Within the dart's foam flowed a variety of agents, harmless in themselves until mixed. On striking a solid object, the foam and agents within activated, their chemical and physical interaction taking roughly 10 seconds to create a new compound so unstable at room temperature that critical combustion would occur roughly 20 seconds after impact. In colder settings, the darts would explode 30 seconds after impact with its target. In a barren desert at high noon, those conditions had never been tested. Until now. Constance thought she had heard Thompson call out, Eleven! Just before she heard the sharp explosion. A heartbeat later came the shockwave, lifting her motor car off its back wheels as she sped further and further away, their thick camouflage now nothing more than a sheer, dusty veil across the desert. She adjusted the magnification in her goggles back on the ridge. Both cannons were gone, but soldiers were still visible along the top of their base. They continued to shoot at Martin, as well as her own troops. By the amount of extra gunfire they were drawing, she and her response faction would only have moments before they were fish in a rather nasty barrel. Thompson, have we got munitions in this motor car of ours? Aye, that we do, he said, patting on two large crates braced between the transport's frame and his communications equipment. What do you have in mind? Flash the faction, she said, shoving the gear shift into the reverse position. New target, us. The rear tires kicked dirt and rock in all directions, while the piston engine snarled angrily. Their motor car emerged from its cocoon of thick steam and thin dust and continued its backward trajectory. Constance craned her neck around as the distance vanished between her and the enemy ridge. She glanced back to her front and watched as the other cars now came about and closed in on her. To her left, two loco cycles were closing in and pulling their preferred firearms free of holsters. 
Constance could also see the Lococycle masters shaking their heads. I know, lads, but trust me. She looked back over her shoulder. They were only seconds away. Thompson's hands grabbed the overhead rumble bar. Constance knew he was probably swearing up a real summer storm. Their car rumbled up the side of the ridge and threatened to flip over, end over end. The rear wheels came back down against the shifting rock, and unable to gain traction, unable to help them climb, the motor car continued to dig itself into the side of the mountain. Constance watched their wheels sink deeper and deeper into the earth. When they no longer sunk any further, Constance shut down the motor car while tearing herself free of the safety restraints. Move, Thompson! Bullets bounced and pelted their motor car, but Constance kicked her door open and started sliding down the ridge as the closing lococycles drew their aim. Come on, Thompson! She called over her shoulder. The figure in the back of her motor car was slumped forward. He wasn't moving. Ah, fuck it all. Constance spat as she scrambled back up the slope, throwing her hand forward to catch the motor car's frame and pull herself up to the cab. It could have been the impact against the ridge. It could have been surrendering to the gunshot wound in his shoulder. Alive or dead, it did not matter. Constance's own discipline applied to her as it did to those that rallied around her. Leave not a rack behind. She knew very little about William Shakespeare, but when she and her troops had been given a bit of the books as part of their training, she found herself drawn to this particular play. Dr. Sound had referred to this as the calling of her muse. Constance just thought the way Mr. Shakespeare weaved the words together were pretty. This particular phrase from Prospero, however, struck something in her heart. It became the faction's motto. It was her promise to them. His restraint release had jammed, and it was when her knife slashed through the second strap when she heard the dull ringing of explosive darts against the cab of her car. One... Two, three. She groaned as she pulled Thompson out of the motor car. She could hear bullets whizzing past and skipping off the ground. She couldn't think about that. Not even as she hefted her communications officer across her shoulders. She had to keep counting. Six, seven, eight. Her legs burned as she stomped her way further and further toward the rumble and roar of motor cars and local cycles. She was still close enough to hear additional darts strike her stranded vehicle, and already she was at 13. Would that be far enough for her to... The blast and concussion that picked her up and sent both her and Thompson forward was, for a moment, her reality. The desert disappeared. Thompson, she knew curiously enough, was near. The sounds of battle had disappeared. A single soft ring echoed in her own personal darkness. They were so far away. She couldn't make out what anyone was saying. No. She protested. I like it here. It's quiet. Just leave me be. The voices, however, continued to chatter. And while she wanted to remain where she felt at peace, whatever world currently disturbing her solitude would not be denied. The ringing in her ears faded away, replaced by the soft din of an airship. 
Constance recognized the sick bay right away. She had been here before. Many times. Instead of the Kashmir deserts where she last remembered her being, she was on board the Blythe Spirit, a commissioned airship for the Ministry. Welcome back, Commander McGee. It hurt. Everywhere. The light hurt her eyes. Dr. Sound's voice hurt her ears. The mattress, soft and warm as it was, made her back ache. Why, oh why, did Dr. Sound insist on bringing her back? Thompson? She asked. Resting up. Responded the female voice. Constance took a moment, not many female agents in the ministry, and that accent was unmistakable. Braun, Agent Braun, that was her name. I seem to be alone in my opinion, but well done. You did what's right. What you did, sound scoffed, was win a fool's gamble. I am astounded at your resilience, truth be told. You should be, she grumbled. You trained us to be so... I thought the Switzerland sanction was daring, he continued, shaking his head. But this? Dr. Sound, far be it from me to question your authority, interjected a raspy, mechanized voice. It was that chap from India, the one in the mask. Commander McGee's faction is why we are on board the Blythe Spirit and not buried in Kashmir. And her responsive faction could have lost their leader this afternoon on account of her chivalry. He clicked his tongue. As I have argued, your line between chivalry and idiocy is imperceptible, practically non-existent, if you ask me. I don't believe anyone did, Eliza snapped. Constance blinked a few more times, and as the pain subsided, so did her blurriness. She could now see at the foot of her bed a stern-looking ministry director. Agent Braun, the director began, a warning within his words. I will disregard your impertinence as battle fatigue. Then perhaps you will also disregard mine as well, returned the masked field agent. Commander McGee's bravery in rescuing Officer Thompson. Agent Smith, it is not her actions I question so much as her judgment. Had the maneuver of turning her motor car into a bomb failed... But it didn't, Agent Braun insisted. And it blew a hole big enough for her faction to breach. We also got what we needed on Methuselah's order. I fail to see the problem here. Constance closed her eyes. She really wished she could go back to sleep. Instead, she spoke her mind. We're shock troops. Captain waiting until shock is called for. She took a breath, that hurt too, and then added, <sighs> Dr. Sound just didn't anticipate our tactics to be this shocking. Dr. Sound squared his shoulders and tugged lightly on his waistcoat. He never did like it when she read him in such a fashion. It was a trait Constance honed in the streets. Sound still remained on a whole, a confounding, contradictory man. But in this moment, she understood him wholly. I wondered if Switzerland and Morocco were isolated incidents, but today only confirmed my suspicions concerning the nefarious explosive response faction. Constance and Agent Smith both glanced at Agent Braun, who scoffed loudly. Sound, however, consulted his pocket watch, gave a light nod, and then returned his gaze, a touch softer now, to Constance as he took from a small table next to her a syringe. She winced at the pinching in her arm and watched as he removed the needle and took account of her one more time. 
We will discuss this matter further once you have rested up, Commander, the Ministry Director stated before turning to leave. Dr. Sound, Agent Braun stated, I will not stand idly by and watch you reprimand Commander McGee for bravery in the field. Nor I, added Smith. Perhaps Bruce regards them simply as punks, but they show a spirit worthy of Ministry field agents. He stopped at the door, turned, and now his eyes twinkled as they did when Constance first met. Did I mention a reprimand, Agent Braun, Agent Smith? She didn't care this time if it hurt. Constance smiled. He was doing it again. Rest up, Commander McGee. Sound spoke softly, his eyes looking at the two field agents. We will talk in London. The two agents stood there, staring at one another for a moment. Constance had no doubt behind Smith's mask was an expression similar to the New Zealanders. What the hell was that all about? Braun finally asked. Constance settled into the pillows of her cot. Not as comfortable as her bedroll in the faction's barracks, but it would do. It does that from time to time, she said, her words slurring ever so slightly. How lovely. Sleep was, indeed, returning. <laughs> he is a peculiar one, he is. T. Morris began his writing career with his 2002 historical epic fantasy, Moravi, The Chronicles of Rafe and Ascana. In 2005, T. took Moravi into the then-unknown podosphere, making his novel the first book, Podcast, in its entirety. That experience led to the founding of Podiobooks.com and collaborating with Evo Terra and Chuck Tomasi on Podcasting for Dummies and its follow-up, expert podcasting practices for dummies. He won acclaim and accolades for his cross-genre fantasy detective Billy Bob Badding's Mysteries, the podcast of The Case of the Singing Sword winning him the 2008 Parsec Award for Best Audio Drama. Phoenix Rising, a Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences novel, marks T's return to fiction and it can be heard on both Tales from the Archives and his latest podcast project, The Shared Desk. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, order your copy of The Janus Affair, a Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences novel, from your favorite bookstore, or online from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, the iBookstore, or the Science Fiction Book Club. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Koru Studios, Harper Voyager Production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.